Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Show Women's World Cup Daily Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition. England are off the mark, but didn't exactly play Haiti off the park. The Netherlands campaign is getting greater thanks to their Stephanie van der Graaf generator. France were impressively kept at bay by the girls who hail from the land of reggae. South Africa were pleased to take the lead, but were undone by a towering Swede. For Denmark, the campaign's getting finer thanks to a hard-fought win over China. And on Saturday, there were absolute scenes when Japan dismantled the Copper Queens. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, we have Mr. Taylor Rocco. Happy Sunday, Taylor. It's not often we speak on the Lord's Day. What is uh, What is your typical routine for such a day? Uh, not this, I'll tell you that. Not <laughs> not going to bed at 2 a.m. and then waking up at 6 a.m. to watch more soccer. Australia, New Zealand, uh, I'm enjoying the tournament, less so the time frame. Indeed, yes. It's con- uh, we, we're having a debate like who's yeah. got the worst time zone for this tournament, and maybe all of us have a shout. Maybe, actually, not me and Graham. You, it's between you two. <laughs> to be fair. Between yeah. me and Joe, it just really <laughs> depends on if there are 9 p.m. games, because uh, otherwise Joe has definitely got some, got some tough ones. But yeah, I think my viewing schedule reveals the games that I just decide, you know what, I'll catch up with that in the morning, because I need to at least sleep for some period of time. Indeed. Also here, the aforementioned Arizona Joe Lowry. Uh, how's how's your Sunday usually spent, Joe? Uh, yeah, not again. Not talking with you guys. This is a new a new rarity for us here on TSS. I uh, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I love all of your beautiful faces. I guess it's good to see you one extra time every week. Is that good? It feels good. Feels good. To would me. you Would yeah. you rather it be this way or all of us crammed into an apartment in New York again, trying to do this time schedule at the same time? If it means we have the murder dungeon below, then <laughs> I will go with this. Graham is nodding say, very aggressively. Uh, in defense of the murder dungeon and the Brooklyn apartment we shared, Taylor used to make delicious breakfast for us quite often. And I missed those. I missed that, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's been... I, I had that plan today, and instead I barely got through with a, a pot of coffee. That's, that's what I came <laughs> up with this morning. <laughs> That's the spirit. Uh, joining us also, you just heard his voice, Mr. Graham Rutherford. Same question to you, sir. Your Sundays, how typically are they spent? Again, not doing this. I have no idea what day it is. There was F1 on today, which is probably part of my normal Sunday routine. I've watched the F1 before I started recording this. And as I say, that has just shook me up a little bit more. No idea what day it is. Um, yeah, if you told me it was a Thursday, then I would believe you. Uh, Ryan, since none of us actually answered your question, I'll answer for Graham. And say <laughs> uh, in the way that Graham watches every single soccer game, I have it on good authority. Graham is also a base cover when it comes to religion. So he wakes up at 6 a.m., he goes to one religious service, then he goes to a different faith, and he goes to 12 
different services on his Sundays just to make sure he covers all the bases. Well, that is the way I see it, though. You know, it's just, it depends how you define religion. You know, I go onto the classic football shirt site first thing when I wake up. Yeah. Then I go onto Sterling Albion Forum. You know, these are types of religions. Right. So so you go to that. Ryan goes to Lululemon. I probably go to Reddit. And Joe goes to just like the Matrix scream of X's and O's. Is that that how it works? (laughs) I think that's about right, yeah. Ones and zeros, I guess, would be the better way to do that. Just binary. Just inject the binary. (laughs) <laughs> Lots of soccer to catch up on since we last spoke, listener. We'll get there very shortly, but just quickly, uh, patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show for all our bonus content. It's jumping on there and on our Discord. Uh, Joe, I don't know if you saw your excellent uh, Greg Verhalter sticky stick story has been transformed oh, into it a was, Seinfeld oh, script. Oh, it was excellent, was it? Was yep, it? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Via chat. No, oh, well, I'm uh, glad. Yeah, I've, I've changed my mind. It was actually very good because <laughs> everyone else said it was good. Now I believe it's good. <laughs> Um, but it's been uh, transformed into a script via ChatGPT on our Discord, and it is excellent. It is, uh, it is Seinfeld. Wait, up. hold on. Has that Sorry. actually happened? I've been in the yeah, Discord. How have I missed this? It's in there. There's a, there's, wow. There is a script. It's a Seinfeld episode now. Go check wow. it out. I, yeah. I, yeah. I, I sort of heard you say that, and it just like went right through one ear and out the other. And Graham, thank you for doubling down. That is, that is truly wild. There you go. Yeah, plenty to enjoy there. Looks like uh, some of the hosts as well are going to go check that out afterwards. So should you listen at patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show. Let's get to the action, shall we? Why don't we start off with the most dominant display probably of this tournament so far. Japan 5, Zambia nil. The former champions off to a flyer against the Copper Queens at Waikato Stadium. Um, Joe, pretty solid performance from Japan here. Yeah. Very technical. Everybody on the same page kind of had those Spain vibes of you know, being one ideal that was being worked to very well. Lovely passing, lovely movement. Japan, they be good here. Yeah, this this group has very quickly, like, divided itself into two different stratospheres. One is the Japan-Spain stratosphere, and the other is the Zambia-Costa Rica stratosphere. 8-0 combined victories for Japan and Spain here over those two teams. This was a brutal one for Zambia. Lots to like about Japan. They were combining well in a really nice, clean 3-4-2-1 shape in possession, they have very clear ideas of how they want to play, and they execute it very, very well. It's not just technical play, although they are very skilled on the ball, a lot of these players, but they're also quick. Like, they're quick to see space. They're aggressive. They have a lot of athleticism. I like so much of what this Japan team brings. What I will say is I did a lot of hyping of Zambia coming into this competition, and I feel that it is my duty now to defend that. Um, I, I would like to say, if I remember correctly, I... I I made my VSP for Zambia that they would have more goals in their games than any team in this competition. So far, things are going fairly well on that route. I didn't specify (laughs) what end those goals would be coming into. Japan, I mean... There's a lot of massaging going on here. (laughs) Yeah, there there is a bit of massaging. There is a bit of massaging. Like, Zambia's back line in this game was just an absolute train wreck. Like, they're already down a goalkeeper coming into this competition. Their starting goalkeeper is no longer available. And now their second-choice goalkeeper picked up two yellow cards, which means they're they're done for the next game. And they couldn't get Barbara Banda involved at all in this match. She was completely isolated. They ended with zero shots in this game. It was a truly brutal and, and frankly, like, horrific performance from Zambia. It bums me out, guys. It bums me out. That high line at times was just absolutely wild. I didn't watch this one live, so I think Taylor and Joe have, have more um, nuanced, in-depth thoughts on this match than I. But when I watched the highlights back, the number of times that Zambia got caught with 
a high line and basically zero pressure on the ball, which is not a good combination to have. And that was a factor for, I think, three of the goals. Yeah. For the first goal, the second goal, and the fourth goal. And some disallowed well, goals as well. And maybe one Let's or two just of toss it all goals. in there, right? Yeah. Oh, my word. <laughs> I mean, and yeah, and Graham, you're not wrong. That back line caused problems when it came to Japan, well, I guess staying onside for a couple of those goals. But then also, I thought the delivery from wide uh, towards the middle from multiple Japanese players uh, really made the difference. Uh, Shimizu and Hujino in the first half, uh, then Nagano and Hasegawa in the second. Uh, a lot of like really perfect bending balls that go around the defenders, but into, path, into the path of the attacker, away from the goalkeeper. I thought the service was excellent, but I also think Zambia did sort of play into Japan's strategy of cutting off the pitch and then pressing and really suffocating them. A lot of giveaways, sometimes under pressure, sometimes not. Uh, my prediction for this game was that Japan would score a goal off of a Zambia giveaway. I'm going to say the first goal is that. There were a lot of times when you could have had that in this game, um, but this was also an interesting one because my broader specific prediction when we did the preview for Japan was that they would have at least one goal where I would say it was a counterattack and Joe would correct me and say, no, actually it was from sustained play. I am not claiming credit for that point here because I'm acknowledging it up front, but so many of the goals and the disallowed goals came from Japan winning the ball back off of a needless turnover by Zambia, then having 10 and 15 pass sequences that led to then rapid like vertical balls or through passes and players would run on and then there'd be that cross and then there'd be that goal. That's the exact type of goal I saw them score in qualifying and in the friendlies leading into this tournament. They're so good on the ball and calm on the ball and then efficient in how they transition to attack. Denmark should probably take notes. We'll talk about Denmark later, but the way Japan attacked is the way Denmark did not. Yeah, and, and one other beat on this game for me, Japan had so many chances to do that. They had so many chances to attack, period, right? Transition, possession, whatever it is, because the issue with Zambia coming into this tournament was always going to be like their back five or their back sixth worth of players. I'm not just talking about the back line because they don't usually play with the back five, but their defensive line mixed with their number six. They don't have a lot of quality in that part of the field. And normally you think about these players and what they bring. And if they don't have a lot of quality, you think about that being a problem defensively. And oh boy, it was in this game. Again, the tattered defensive line that was really like a series of three lines connecting all the different players in the back four. But it also hurt them. That lack of quality hurt them when they won the ball. Like they would, they would either win possession or have a goal kick or whatever it was. And those players in their defensive unit in the base of midfield couldn't successfully get the ball upfield fast enough, or they couldn't yeah. cleanly play through the lines. And so Japan, they would counter press aggressively, which is you know, something that a lot of teams do at this tournament. They would counter press, and Zambia like couldn't figure out what to do with the ball. They couldn't direct it into any of their elite attackers, and it just came back to bite them on repeat in this game. It just wasn't good enough from Zambia in basically any facet of this one. Agreed on that. The other aspect that is confusing to me, if you're going to play the high line, my assumption is that you are then stepping numbers like further all the way up the pitch to then be able to engage higher up to disrupt uh, the opposition right. build, to disrupt them on the ball, and to basically just put them under pressure early and often. And especially as this game goes on in the second half, uh, Nagano and Hasegawa are just consistently wide open. Now, a lot of that has to do with Japan moving the ball quickly and then finding them in little pockets of space. 
But you cannot allow those two time on the ball. We saw this a number of different times, including in the assists for a couple of the goals there at the end, that if you give those two central midfielders time and space on the ball to turn and look forward, they're going to thread the needle. They are going to find those passes wide. They're going to find those through passes, or they're going to take some shots themselves. That did seem to be another aspect of what Japan were trying to do is second string goalkeeper, test her early and often, and they did just that. It, It was a comprehensively dominant performance from Japan and at the same time one that because Zambia were so bad on both sides of the ball I don't know how much we can really know for sure about this Japan team until they play another game or two um for now though Taylor Mm -hmm. uh, are we are we putting Japan firmly in the dark horse category I I might even have them in the favorite category based on this performance and also what I saw from them leading into this tournament. I think the familiarity they have, I talked about that in the preview, that many of these players have played together since the U17 level, certainly since the U20 level, um, under this manager as well. So you could see, I think, a lot of that familiarity. Uh, Joe, my mom, I I was uh, hanging out with her yesterday, and she mentioned that she didn't know what reps were whenever you say uh, they need more minutes and reps. So I had to explain that that's like, like when you play one game together, that's one rep, and then you keep playing games. It's just repetition. Yeah, exactly. It's just more repetition. Uh, And this was a Japan team that clearly had a lot of reps together. I think you could see that in pretty much every aspect of how they played. So Taylor, your your mom's not a gem bro, right? (laughs) My mom is not a gym bro. That is, is that is correct. Unless she, she's up to things I don't know about. You does know? she even lift? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's better than mine. <laughs> Joe, to come back to you, uh, you mentioned the two different strata in this group with Spain and Japan. Yeah. Is there any scenario with two games, to, two rounds of games to go where Costa Rica and Zambia get anything from this group? No. I Well, get anything is maybe a different story. Get out is is an right. absolute no for me. This was the X-Factor game for Zambia. They, they kind of needed to nick a few somethings, either a point or, or three points would have been even better, obviously, off of Japan, or at least show a bit of a fight that maybe made them believe that against Spain, who were going to do what Japan did in this game, but turn it up to 11, that they would be able to find some space, that they would be able to play over the top. It is still not impossible for, the, for things to be shaken up a little bit. Zambia have X-Factors. But I, I cannot really imagine the top two in this group changing. It might be Spain 1, Japan 2, instead of Japan 1, Spain 2, but it, it will be those two teams. Yeah, and I don't think Zambia's cause will be helped by the fact that, uh, as Jordy mentioned, uh, ha- uh, Hazel Nali, their usual yep. starting goalkeeper, out of the tournament now, Catherine Musonda, will miss the next game due to that yellow card accumulation, the red card suspension. So in comes Eunice uh, Sakalahu, does score the penalty or save the penalty, unfortunately, then is off her line. It's retaken and the penalty is scored. Uh, but I was really confused why Musanda ended up getting the red card because she gets a yellow card for conceding a penalty. There's a foul. It's a penalty. But then VAR shows that uh, the player was offside. Uh, so then the penalty is is removed. It's, it's a free kick going the other way. But the yellow card stands. And I remembered instances in the past when that has not been the case i found a really good article about this uh that made uh me understand things from the bola news uh and it, and it was it did a good job of, of laying out the story in relation to Diop Mukano uh earlier this season in the champions league gets a red card for pulling back early holland outside the box uh so it's denial of goal scoring uh from outside the box it's a red card but then var shows that holland is offside and in that situation because he's offside and because Upamakano is making a play to basically stop that goal from happening, if the player is offside uh, and the professional foul has happened, then you uh, give the offside and you remove the card. 
in this case because it wasn't it like basically trying to deny the goal. It was trying to make a play on the ball. This is such an odd way of understanding it, but it's the case. Uh, the IFAB explanation, if play continues after an incident, which is then reviewed, any disciplinary action taken or required during the post-incident period is not canceled, even if the original decision is changed, except the caution sending off for stopping or interfering with a promising attack. So I, I still think there's maybe a little bit of gray area as to if you're bringing the player down when you're in a 1v1 situation that feels like stopping a promising attack. So the language is a little bit confusing, but basically because Musonda commits a foul that isn't just trying to like pull a player back, it's an actual foul. The yellow card stands even if the penalty does not. So there's the first yellow card there. Then she gets another one for a very similar situation later on in this game and gets the red card. But this is not the first of some questionable red cards we're going to be talking about today, I suspect. So uh, an, in, an interesting one, but one that I was very confused by for a good 15 minutes until I did some deep Googling. Indeed. Thank you for deep Googling that one, yeah. Taylor. And uh, Japan and Spain emerging with two of the best performances of the tournament so far. Group C looking good in that respect. Uh, when we come back, a performance that wasn't so hot from England and one very good from Haiti. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sodal Soccer Show, welcome back to our World Cup Daily. Let's turn our attention to a team that didn't have a daily, a Rachel Daily. Oh, good link, Ryan. England won 18-0. Uh, Georgia Stanway with a penalty to win this one at the second time of asking. Uh, England's first goal in three games. No goals in open play for the last four games for England. Graham, I felt like there was some comfort in the disappointment of this. It felt like pre-Gareth Southgate men's team England were viewing for me, like what I've grown up with, what I'm familiar with. Also, I saw this comparison, which I really liked. It felt a bit like the, to go back to the men's game, the USA game in Qatar, where the underdogs were much, perhaps much stronger than expected, a very strong performance from the underdogs. The final ball not being quite there and getting counterattack far more often than expected. It felt like there were some parallels there. Yeah, so this was one of those matches where I ended up more impressed with the team that lost than the team that won. This was not a comfortable experience for England at all, and some of that was down to England's performance, which wasn't great, as you referenced, Ryan. But Haiti also managed to impose their own game on England, and on another day, they would have got something out of this match, and it would have been the biggest shock of the tournament so far, given the rankings of of the two countries, and also... The situation in Haiti and the resources that England have, there's a huge, huge disparity between these two countries. I don't think we've actually seen a bigger disparity in, in, in that sense of this tournament so far. But Haiti Haiti more than held their own. I was going to say held their own, but they actually took their game to England at times. Um, as it was, England did just enough to get over the line um, and Haiti did sort of fade in the second half. But it feels like Suno Wiegmann has some things to figure out. And Haiti might look at this tournament in a, in a different way now that they've got this game out of, the, out of the way. Yes, this is still a challenging group for them, but they have two more winnable games to come. Um, certainly given what we saw from Denmark in particular, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But there was just so much to like about Haiti's performance. Out of possession, they were really well drilled in the block and there was lots of smart pressing and pressing triggers and it was energetic at times, but also compact and disciplined when it needed to be. Then in possession, they were very, very dangerous on the break. And then Wiegmann admitted afterwards that England struggled to handle the way that Haiti were operating and opening up in transition. There was this clear thing that Haiti were doing where they kept a front two out of possession. And that was usually uh, Borgella or one of either uh, Mondesi or, 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 or Louise as uh, 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 the front two. And then they would gain possession and they'd have uh, Dumourne carry it. And the front two would then split and the England centre pack centre backs didn't like that at all. And they didn't handle that. They didn't get to grips with that throughout the whole match. Dumorne, I have to mention in particular as the best yes. player on the pitch. Yes, which was quite something given the level of talent England have. But she was genuinely dazzling at times. And I got I got my VS, VSP point in the second half when Dumorne beat a couple of England players, then unleashed this absolute laser on goal, which almost knocked Mary Ertz into her own, own her own net. So I said there'd be a moment of panic and the Discord decided that that counted as a, a moment of panic. But there were several other moments where it was clear England just had no idea how to handle her when, when she got going. Now, there were, just one final beat on Haiti, there were still some moments of frustration where it felt like 
they were just about to be clean through and go. And there was one moment in the first half when they were clean through and go when Dumarnay plays through Borgella and she shoots wide. She might have done uh, a little bit better in, in, in that situation. But there were so many moves when Haiti's final ball um, or a loose touch let them down or the final ball was missing. And had they just been a little bit tighter, they would. I think they would have caused even more trouble in, in, in this match, but certainly yeah. encouraging for them for the rest of the tournament. Yeah, Graham, I, I agree with all of what you said there. I, I have concerns for both Haiti, and we'll get on to Jamaica a bit later, who pulled off an extremely impressive result, although some disciplinary issues there with Bunny Shaw in terms of a red card will pretty much alter the rest of their competition at this point. But my concern with Haiti is Dumornay is legitimately awesome, and I'm so glad that we got this performance from her in the first game of the group stage for Haiti because she she showed up in exactly the way that we kind of thought she would coming into this tournament. My concern is, is that... Is that moment in the 14th minute, Graham, that you described? I don't know if you wrote it down, that Dumornay ball in behind that leads to a shot. I think there's so many of these kinds of moments where Dumornay gets on the ball and finds somebody and then things fizzle from there. And that's the issue for Haiti is they have a truly elite player in Dumornay and the rest of the squad can put in a functional defensive performance, although they, they were under a lot of pressure here from England, even if it wasn't England going out and finding high-quality chance after high-quality chance. But man, they can defend. I'm just concerned about what happens moving forward as they transition, given that they couldn't pick up even a point in this game. But still, Haiti have to be impressed with what, how they how they performed in this game. And England, Ryan, you kind of let us in with that. And it was it was a good tie-in, by the way. I hate to say it, the Rachel Daly was it was good. <laughs> like ah, England, I think have some questions about themselves that they need to answer as well. Yeah, yeah, just a. Com- Pretty much a lack of cohesion from England, as we sort of uh, hinted at here, I think. Just kept losing possession in dangerous moments. Millie Bright, maybe not a full fitness, looked a bit rusty. I suppose got better as the game went on. But I, I too, Graham, worried about that back line. And I think maybe as the tournament goes on and England come up, come up against more robust forward lines, that's going to be a problem, I, I would imagine, for maybe Brighton Carter not to top their games in this one. It just feels like there's not enough control in this England team. Yeah. But the one thing I am I am gonna hang hang my hat on as, as a as a beacon of hope is that the Euros last uh, exactly. the first game of the Euros for England was a, a nervy one 0 win over Austria. That tournament turned out all right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say that England are gonna grow into this one a little bit more. Yeah, that tournament certainly did turn out all right. And and you're right, England started slowly in 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 the Euros. Um, I'm going to contradict myself a little bit here and say this this time feels a little bit different. Um, and I think there are a number of reasons for that. So as you mentioned, Ryan, they've gone 377 minutes now without scoring a goal from open play. And I don't know how much value we put in that because a lot of those minutes are in friendly matches and, 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 and so on. But nonetheless, it's quite a start statistic for a team with the attacking talent and t- the talent in, in, in general that England have. And watching this match, I was I was concerned about the lack of creativity, um, and and this has been something of a common theme with some of the big teams at this tournament so far. But England are very cross heavy, and and in general, not just in this match, that has been a part of their game for a while, even going back to Phil Neville's time in charge, which I know everyone likes to pretend didn't happen, but I assure you, it did happen. He was England manager for a time. Um, yeah, I think back to last year when England won the Euros and it felt like they had more of an option to create through the middle, whether that be through Fran Kirby, of course, who is a, 
an archetypal number number 10 sort of creator, um, or even Beth Mead cutting inside and, and doing a lot in central areas. Of course, both those players injured for this tournament, not just for this match. They won't play at all. They're not in the squad for England at this World Cup. And so for this match, Wigman went with Chloe Kelly and Lauren Hemp as the wide players, and then Alessio Russo as the centre forward. Obviously, that was a big debate for England coming into this tournament, who would start as the number nine. Wigman goes with Russo, and that immediately indica- indicated that England were going to cross a lot and not do a whole much else. Um, and I don't really know how England addressed that, because I don't see a natural creator on on the bench. And of course, Serena Wigman isn't big on ringing changes anyway. She's stuck with the same starting lineup all the way through the Euros last year. She only makes, I think, two substitutes in, yep. uh, substitutions yep. in this game. So it's not really part of what Serena Wigman does. Um, I noticed that uh, Georgia Stanway was dropped a little bit deeper in the second half, and that did help a bit to stop Haiti finding so much space to play through on the on the break. But still, England struggled in this moment. They struggled to create. It wasn't all bad. There were some good performances. I thought Jess Carter did well playing out from the back, even if out of possession, Dumornay and that Haiti front line was 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 giving them a heart attack every yeah. every 10 minutes or so. I thought Lauren James looked lively when she came on, cutting yeah. in off the left wing onto her right foot. A lot of England's best play came down that left side, particularly when Lauren James came off the bench. So I know Serena Wiegmann doesn't like to make changes, but clearly Lauren James is part of her core group. And so I do wonder if we see Lauren James um, coming in for maybe Chloe, Ke- Chloe Kelly on that left side for the for the Denmark game. She was quite impressive. But yeah, as I say, it just there's just something about this team right now that feels a bit different to the Euros last year. Even in the way that Georgia Stanway comes out after the match and immediately in the post-match interview on BBC or ITV, I can't remember what channel it was on over here, but says, you know, the fans need to relax a little bit. And I'm thinking to myself, where has she picked that Discord up from? Discourse uh, up from? Because she's not she's not been on like social media. She's just come off the pitch. Mm. That says to me that they are feeling pressure. And last year it felt like the team was kind of all in it together and it was a strong team spirit. And this season, uh, this season, this, this tournament, I'm not getting the same sense. There are some warning signs there for England. Graham, yeah. I doubt you can really comment on this, but I will ask anyway. Is there a chance that it was like, I don't know how like well attended it was. I'm not sure of the atmosphere. I didn't watch this game. Uh, like was, could she been talking about the atmosphere in the stadium, but there are those games where you can tell the crowd is sort of getting really anxious or they're, or they're not sort of fully backing the team. They're more like what's happening. This is not great. Could that have been what she was referring to? Or do you think maybe she did just secretly have a cell phone on her throughout the game and was monitoring <laughs> the England discord that I'm sure they have for all the supporters? Yeah. She was wearing Google glass throughout the match. <laughs> Um, I think it's probably more in reference to the pressure England have come under in the in the tune-up games, in the okay. warm-up matches, where they've faced quite a bit of criticism, not scoring a lot of goals. And so she's maybe just extending that criticism and applying it to this match and thinking, well, we've only just we've beaten Haiti 1-0 with a penalty. We're going to get criticised for the same sort of thing. That's my reading of it. But as I say, it does say to me that that, that camp is coming under a bit of pressure already. Yeah. I wonder whether it was a bit of preempting the discourse as well. Uh, mm. from, from that comment too but I think I think a spot on there Graham I thought the, uh, things picked up when Lauren James came on Rachel Dadewin came on as well I thought that was a, a good turning point and the Russo Daly thing obviously I, I expected Daly to start because it was part of the, the, former, the core of my VSP was based around her scoring early but you mentioned how Russo being on there was indicated lots of crosses were coming in my, my view was that Daly would be better positioned to deal with the threat from crosses so, so- so I think Daly is better at taking a crossing crossing chance, but I think Russo is more of a 
they're both quite physical, but I think Russo is quite good at taking a cross down in the box and then maybe bringing others in. And that's where last last year we saw like Georgia Stanway and even Kira Walsh and so on getting brought in as as late crashers into the box. The problem was that England were so deep in midfield in this game that they didn't really have those late crashers. So, um, yeah, I think it's not a massive stylistic shift to go from Russo to Daly. I think we might see Rachel Daly start the next the next game because I didn't see a whole lot from Alessia Russo as good as she is to suggest that she's going to hold down that number nine place for the tournament. Indeed. Well, a very different team from the one in the Euros for reasons of injuries, retirements and whatnot. We shall see how this team progresses. Uh, a huge game for Haiti, as we've covered here, though. Um, first World Cup game since 1974 for men or women. It was ITV, Graham, showing it in the UK, if you reference, because England didn't play well. It was on ITV. That's the, uh, that's the, uh, thing the that curse. They, the curse, they say, happens I've always liked in the ITV. UK. Indeed. Uh, but the ITV commentary did say that people in Haiti had been buying TVs purely to watch this tournament, which is quite impressive uh, of how much impact that one, that is having in Haiti. Very good indeed. Uh, Denmark and England are on three points in Group D. China and Haiti on zero points at the moment. Denmark won China nil, of course, the other game in this group. First World Cup win for Denmark since 2007. The first game of the tournament without a penalty, I believe, if memory serves at the point of this game. It felt like, Graham, China had the better of the action here, generally speaking, and maybe a draw would have been fairer. Is that fair? Um, perhaps. I mean, I think I said in my preview that China would be stronger than people expected before the start of the tournament, and I feel quite good about saying that after this match. Yes, they lost in the end, but I think they did an excellent job of limiting Denmark, who really weren't able to impose themselves in an attacking sense. They didn't really have anything in an attacking sense until the 50th minute, until the second half, when Hasbro has a, a header over the bar from inside the inside the box. And then, of course, all hell breaks loose in the final few minutes when mm. Denmark score the winner with a... Does this count count as a long-range header? Yes. It felt like quite a yes, long-range header. Even though yes. it's inside the box, it's a corner, cl- corner kick played to the, like, the back corner of the box. And then the header is back across where yeah. the, the corner came from and, and bounces in in the far corner. And then China had one cleared off the, the line in, in, in stoppage time as well. So a pretty manic end to the game that didn't quite reflect the match as a whole, I, I didn't predict everything right right with China, so Wang Shanshan played centre-back in this match, which she actually did in the Asian Cup final last year, so it wasn't without precedent, but still didn't see that coming because the matches that I watched, I previewed China, at the matches that I watched before this tournament, Shanshan was so crucial to the way that they play um, in terms of going quite long and her, having her to knock it down, but I guess they, they, they saw that her defensive contribution, having her as a physical presence, is more important for this game. Also, China have pace, which is something I maybe didn't fully appreciate in my preview, and, and they are fit as well. So, unlike Haiti, who maybe weren't able to sustain the performance over the full 90 minutes, I thought China did a good job of, of doing that. But yeah, another one of those matches where I liked what I saw from the team that ended up losing, although I don't know if I could argue they deserved to win. I wouldn't say they deserve to win. I think, Ryan, to your initial question, a draw probably would have been fair for this one just because China did look more, at the very least, exciting in the way they attacked, that it was much more aggressive, it was much more direct, but I think it was with a plan in place, not just kick it kick it long and, long and hope. Um, I think Denmark, for their part, went a little bit uh, to their advantages, which is to say that 
they brought on all their giants, uh, and the giant won a header, and that's how they win this game. So credit to them for having height, I guess. Uh, but I would also say uh, credit to Lars Sundergaard, their manager, for making proactive changes because the first half was not good from Denmark and not really engaging. The second half wasn't much better, but they changed things up. Um, the commentators on Fox suggested that they went to a back five at one point in the second half. I'm not sure that actually happened, but what they did definitely do was change personnel around. Uh, they uh, He moves uh, Pernille harder, deeper, so she's on the ball more. She had been doing that, but when she was the number nine dropping in to try to link up play, to try to find sort of passing options and to turn under pressure and play forward... She's then playing to no one ahead of her, and it really slowed down Denmark's ability to attack. Uh, they really didn't have much of, of an ability to attack. But then Signa Brun comes on. I talked about her in the preview. Uh, she is such an important goal scorer and such a good sort of fox-in-the-box striker. So to have her up there, to have harder, deeper, uh, and then they bring on uh, Rika Madsen to play on the left wing, and she's just running down, running down, winning balls, high-pressing. Uh, I think she forces a turnover that leads to the corner, that leads to the winner. Uh, and then Amelie Vansgaard coming in very late, and she's the one who scores the winner. So lots of, of, of smart changes for Denmark, but still the case that when uh, I watched this game, I knew the result and then I rewatched re it. I thought maybe we're going to get a narrative of, oh, they completely turned it around. They figured things out. They were the dominant team. The numbers would indicate that they have... Uh, they improved from first half to second half in total passes, in passes in the opposition half, in shots taken, uh, in chances created, in corners earned, even in fouls drawn. So it's a it's a better performance in the second half, but that it's, it would not be fair to say that then it was a dominant performance by any stretch of the imagination from Denmark. It's basically a few smart changes uh, and a good header at the end were the difference in this one but it doesn't make me feel too optimistic about my confidence uh, in Denmark before this tournament. Okay. We also had a late winner elsewhere in Scandinavia. Is, is Denmark Scandinavia? I'm going to say it is. Uh, elsewhere at Sweden 2, South Africa 1. Yeah, I, I don't think... Um, it, it probably it is, right? It's it is. not on that peninsula up the top, though, is it? It's I, on the... you're, you're correct that one of the countries that we think of as being Scandinavian does not like to be called Scandinavian, and mm. I'm not sure which one it is. Maybe Finland? I forget. We'll find out. I'm sure someone will let us know. <laughs> Finland don't like being called Russia. I know that. Anyway, um, comeback come win for Sweden in this one. Amanda Illestead scoring last minute winner uh, to seal it. Uh, not as well supported in the stadium for what we could see on the broadcast here. Uh, South Africa denied their first ever World Cup point in this one. Graham, how did we see this one? Uh, I was distracted. I had to rewind when the BBC commentator mentioned Thailand and he called it Thailand. I had to go back. Oh, I noticed choice. that as well. I, I, like, I thought what? that was, yeah, that was. And o that is, only um, him and Trump have done that so far. But anyway, that Conor McMenamin as well, who who is yeah. a good commentator. Yeah, I yeah. noticed that as well. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, South Africa, a good performance from South Africa, obviously late goal from uh, Sweden. There is a, an emerging trend at this tournament of the big nations being given a game by teams in previous World Cups that they might have been expected to sweep aside. We saw it with Haiti against England, as we've just talked about. Even Vietnam against the US, I know it was complete dominance from the US, but it's only 3-0, you know, not 13-0, put it that way. And uh, we certainly got it here, where, as I say, South Africa were impressive against Sweden. So for anyone who had their doubts about the expanded World Cup format this year, it feels like those those doubts haven't been realised or those fears haven't been realised. And it feels like we've talked about the rising tide at the top of the, the game and the gap between the US and the rest getting uh, narrower or even closing up entirely. It kind of feels like the... Um, 
the kind of bottom level, the watermark in at the top of the international game in women's football has has also risen in the last four years, which is is very encouraging. Indeed. Uh, anyone else, Joe? Did you catch this one? Any notes on this game? I didn't catch much of this one at all. I I do though totally agree with Graham. Like I, I've been very very surprised. I previewed South Africa. Thought they were very, very limited in a lot of different ways, struggling at times to be organized. They don't have a ton of of really talented attacking players. Like Thembi Katlana, who starts for them in this game, he is a reserve striker for Racing Louisville in the NWSL. And yet, like, there is something to be said in all these games about a compact defensive structure. And that's been a common theme for a lot of these underdog opponents, right? Vietnam came and put a lot of numbers behind the ball. The Philippines tried to do the same thing against Switzerland, and maybe there are some individual issues in both of those structures, but I think that is is a reality here. South Africa come in this game with a really stout back four. They end up with just, what is it, 31% possession. I mean, you can run through the list of Haiti and Jamaica, and Jamaica, again, is, is maybe the team that I've been most impressed with so far from this underdog group. But, I, I mean, credit to South Africa for the fight that they showed in this game. And, and, again, credit to Sweden as well as the favorite in this group for coming in and getting the job done to pick up three points in their first match. Yes, indeed. Uh, South Africa's captain, Reflo Jane, almost scoring early with a 40-yard lob was a, a nice touch in this one as well. Could have been an exciting start for this one. Uh, Taylor, anything on this one? Or should we take a little break and head over to Netherlands, Portugal? What say We you? can take a break. Let's do that. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Netherlands' uh, win over Portugal and France's stalemate with Jamaica back shortly. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our Women's World Cup Daily. We go now to Netherlands 1, Portugal nil. A year after meeting in the groups at the Euros. They face each other once again. A winning start for Liga Martens and Co. here. Netherlands with a, a, a Van der Graaf generator. Can I use that pun twice? Can I do it? I just did. Just did. Uh, she got the goal um, in the first half awarded via VAR. Uh, Graham, thoughts on Netherlands and uh, their opener here? What do we think? Yeah, I don't think anyone could argue that the the Netherlands weren't the better team here, but it certainly wasn't emphatic. You know, they didn't play with the, the highest of intensity. They generally struggled to create much from open play. Um, but against a, a a Portugal team that, to be perfectly honest, I found really disappointing. Um, they were dreadful from set pieces. This was a Portugal team that, at the Euros last year, I remember watching them and in a couple matches, they were really, really fun. They were involved in a couple of the most chaotic matches in that tournament. They drew, I think, 2 all with Switzerland when they were 2-0 down. They lost 3-2 to the Netherlands, as you referenced there, Ryan. That was a very different sort of match to this one. So I'd hope that this Portugal, excuse me, that Portugal team would be the one that we'd see at this World Cup. And instead, we got the Portugal team that held England to a 0-0 draw a, a few weeks ago. Um, Portugal just had no way to hurt the Netherlands. They didn't have a single touch in the opposition box until the 81st minute of this match when they had their first attempt on goal. And that attempt was actually a pretty decent one and Van Domselaar had to make a good save from uh, Encarcio. But 
with the exception of that moment, there was just no plan from Portugal on how to get forward. Um, on the Dutch side of things, I mean, I'm not really sure what to make of, of their performance as a whole, to be honest. I guess I would place it in the need-to-see-more category right now right now before I can project forward for them. There were some nice individual moments from Lique Mertens and Ismay Brutes. Um, I was interested to see her start, given I mentioned her in my preview as a young player to keep an eye on, but clearly Andres Jonker sees her as, as an important part of his core group. However, a lot of the time it felt like Berenstein was kind of running down a blind alley and I certainly wanted Jill Roard to get forward more and, and more involved in the attack. And Portugal had lots of bodies back a lot of the time and that made things difficult, but there's certainly more for this Dutch team to give, um, yeah. which has been a common theme for a lot of the bigger nations at this World Cup so far. I would put I would put them in that uh, in that pigeonhole. This game was just incredibly chaotic. Like there was so much happening all the time. Portugal, Graham, you you talked a bit about them. They were compact in some ways, but every time a ball came into like a, a vertical zone in front of a player, like if I'm playing left back or left wing back, it was a pretty fluid defensive shape from Portugal here. And let's say Taylor's got the ball 15 yards in front of me, driving at me. I'm I'm not waiting for him to come to me. Like I am going to meet him. Portugal, we're trying to apply this sort of pressure. The Joe, you got magged in that scenario, just so you know. I I felt that I felt that a lot. I didn't know if the audience knew it, um, but it, that is true. Taylor's telling the truth. Like it was, it was there were bodies flying around everywhere. The Netherlands were very very aggressive in their press as well. They went aggressive with their personnel even in the back three. Like there were bodies flying around for the majority of this game. Which, for me, as somebody who watched this match, really to try and, and figure out how the U.S. can exploit these two teams in their final group stage matches. These are the two teams that are in the group with the U.S. and Vietnam. I, I wanted to know what the, the strengths and weaknesses were in more detail at the World Cup for these teams. I'm honestly not totally sure how much information we get, and Vlako Andonofsky and his coaching staff get, because... If both of these teams are smart, they will take up a much more defensive posture or at least won't be so recklessly aggressive. What I will say, Graham, you mentioned this. Like, Portugal's set-piece defending continues to be a major for issue for them. Play yeah, for I, free kicks. Genuinely, yes. <laughs> so uh, for Vacuil, we had Yash Thakur, who, who does a lot of great work covering women's soccer, good follow on Twitter, uh, writing an article talking about Portugal and previewing this group. And the stat that's in there from Yash is that at the Euros last summer, Portugal as this team that were brought in to replace Russia – Eight goals that they conceded if you toss out penalties and own goals. Six of those eight goals were set-piece concessions. Six of those eight goals. Like, that is a criminally high statistic for Portugal. They come in at the World Cup in their first game at this competition, and they concede, what, another goal from a set-piece. And it wasn't even the only good chance they had. Like, Portugal, they have a few bodies. Like, they have, they have some height, but they lack height in different parts of the field. And their marking system just doesn't appear to work. Like, it's not actively engaged. It's a mixture of man-to-man of -man and zonal marking, and there's almost always space at the back post, and that's where the Dutch snagged their goal, is it's, it's zonal marking and man marking, both sort of in the sphere of the Netherlands in that moment, and Van der Graak scores anyway. Like, it is, it, it's honestly absurd at how easy it is to create some of these chances. If I'm the U.S., that's the first thing I'm looking at up against Portugal, and, and if I'm the U.S. against the Netherlands... I want them to be aggressive. Like, I want to try to bait their back three forward and really attack space on either side of the center center back or to attack space outside that back three. I think the U.S. has a lot here that they can take advantage of. But again, mm -hmm. I think the, the games will look a lot different as well because these two teams, Portugal and the Dutch, would be crazy to play exactly like this against the U.S.
One thing that, that Vlatko is surely looking at is the back three setup from the Netherlands, and in particular, the the selection of uh, Sherda Spitz as one of those three yes. central defenders, which for me, maybe that has been attempted before and I just hadn't seen it, but that was very surprising to me. Um, Spitz is obviously a central midfielder, and she was still pushing into central midfield when the Dutch had possession, but out of possession, she was very much a defensive figure. Um, and so I can imagine Sophia Smith watched this and how Jessica Silva was was giving Spitz a lot of trouble whenever she picked up the ball and, and ran at, at the Dutch defence, essentially. I can imagine Sophia Smith, Sophia Smith watched this with excitement at what she could do against uh, Sherda Smith, uh, Spitz as a, as a centre-back. Taylor, your thoughts on that? Um, with the US looking at these two teams coming up in the group, uh, how, how they're going to approach these teams? Do they see opportunities here? Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm excited coming away from this game for both of those US games because I think they will both offer threats, but also they will both offer specifically defensive problems that the United States has to solve or try to figure out. And I think anything, Joe and I talked about this a lot with the U.S. review, anything that's going to make them have to play out of their comfort zone or try to play more as a unit or try to do more things as a team to score goals and make their opponent uncomfortable will prepare them better for the knockout rounds. So I think they could be really good opponents for the United States uh, because they're going to be tricky. They're going to be difficult to break down, I think, when it comes to Portugal. But I think in the end, they're also going to be teams that the United States should be able to get past. So it gives us a good sort of level for understanding how much we should expect from them going forward. Uh, US Netherlands coming up on Wednesday evening, Thursday in uh, Oz, New Zealand. Graham, I put it to you that this will be the two best kits of the tournament facing one another. The US and the Netherlands? Yeah. The US is certainly right up there. I've been trying to buy the US kit, can't get it anywhere in a men's size, right. which is unfortunate. The remind me what the, the Dutch one is. Don't say orange, please. Don't say orange. Yeah, but it's a very specific shade of orange. It's that nice, light, almost coral orange. I really like it. Graham would call it Aranje, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't come to me for pronunciations. <laughs> yeah, I'm always a sucker for the Dutch kits, but I think this is a particularly nice shade of orange. I'll say that much. Uh, listener, let us know your thoughts on the kit wars coming up later this week. Let's go to France. Nil, Jamaica nil. A first ever World Cup point for Jamaica here. Frustrating night for Herve Renard and his team. In- and his shirt. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, in, in heavy rain, didn't didn't hold up in <laughs> Sydney. Um, tough, tough one as we mentioned earlier in the show for Jamaica star striker Bunny Shaw sent off in stoppage time. Two pretty Boo. questionable yellow cards, Taylor. Not, not, we're not a fan of those decisions, are we? I, I, okay. I want to poll the room here on the first one. For the second one, I, I think it is a situation where it looks. I, I was like, why is she even protesting? This is definitely, definitely a yellow card. You slid in, you were reckless, you were out of control, you only got the player, you took out Wendy Renard, and then you watch the replay, and not really, really, she slides in and blocks the ball, and then her trailing leg makes contact with Renard, I would argue, I would argue when she's already sort of off balance and falling. I, I think maybe the official thought it was worse in the moment the replay showed it was not bad, like maybe a foul, but not a yellow card for me. I'm also confused about the first one. And and from what I understand from Mark Clattenberg, who's uh, one of Fox's rules analysts, um, any stamp on the top of the foot is going to be a yellow card at, at a minimum in this tournament. 
But the idea that this was a stamp is is not one I would necessarily agree with from Bunny Shaw. It felt to me like she was trying to make a play on the ball and her foot comes down. I think it's Majri gets there first and pokes the ball away. Uh, it didn't really seem like much to me. Again, maybe a yellow, but I, I wouldn't go that far. I, I think maybe a foul. So that's where I am. The second one, definitely not a yellow for me. The first one, maybe not. But the consensus seemed to be like, oh, no, that could have even been a red card. Hervé Renard was losing his mind about that not being given a red card to Shaw for the initial challenge. So I'm wondering what the uh, the rest of the group would say about those decisions. So I'm going to be rubbish in this poll. I can't remember the first yellow. The second yellow, I didn't think <laughs> was a yellow. That kind of tells me something, though, I think. <laughs> Answers the question a little bit. Yeah, I've been trying to Google it here, but I couldn't find the clip while you were talking. Second yellow, I thought, was harsh. It probably is a foul, but as you say, Taylor, the, the contact is minimal. This, this comes back to the discussion that we've had early in this tournament about what is what is the the threshold for contact like football is a contact sport not everything is a like a booking and a, or a penalty or whatever the second one I, yeah i thought that wasn't a yellow but i can't i can't really comment on the first one because yeah. i can't remember it i would say the first one was probably a yellow and the second one taylor had the exact same reaction that you did of thinking this is obvious mm-hmm. like what what has gone on here i still don't think it was the right decision Agreed. For Bunny Shaw to go and make that challenge. Agreed. Wendy Renard is so close to that sideline. You're so close to seeing out this result. Just don't dive in. I think that was a foolish thing to do after a genuinely incredible performance from Bunny Shaw. But I, I think she should feel hard done by because of the officiating in this game. I, I broadly agree, Joe, Joe, but I think there is a greater inconsistency in the, or I've seen greater inconsistency from the referees at this tournament so far. So from Bunny Shaw's point of view, if you have greater consistency, you know, right, I'm not going to dive in here because the referee's going to give me a yellow card. But there have been other situations where players haven't received yellow cards or even fouls or whatever in those situations. Yeah. So it's difficult as a player to, to have um, that understanding, that awareness when you don't have the consistency of refereeing. Yeah, I, my contri- contribution to this poll is that the the sum of those two offences doesn't quite add up to a red. I think mm-hmm. is where I where I land. On. And it's so damaging for Jamaica as yeah. well. The the way they played this game, obviously very impressive in a defensive sense, but on the ball, Bunny Shaw really is Jamaica in possession. Essentially, quite similar to how Haiti looked for Dumarnay in their game. Jamaica looked for Bunny Shaw as both a creator and a goal threat, and so to not have her for you could maybe absorb her in a, in, a, in, a, in a weird way you could maybe absorb her absence in a game like this where Jamaica are not expected to get anything out of the game against France she's going to miss the game against Panama in this group which is the game that could determine the success or failure of this whole tournament for Jamaica so it's a it's a disaster yeah yeah it, it is it is bad timing like there's never a good time to pick up a red card in the tournament I talked about earlier how this could derail Jamaica and it very much could that said Graham it sounds like you would be a you would be more in favor of her being unavailable for a game against a better team where they're going to sit back a little bit deeper like Brazil. And I would say, and, and, and like this game against France, I would say that I'll, I'll take Bunny Shaw out for Panama and back for Brazil. Like I, I would try to trust my the rest okay. of my squad, even though I think the quality is low. The challenge is just if you don't get a result against Panama, you're in, you're in deep, deep, deep trouble. So it is obviously not a good situation. That's not me breaking any new ground. But man, I came away so impressed with Bunny Shaw. I was impressed with Jamaica and their defensive structure. Very much not impressed with France, and I'm sure we'll get on to that. But there's just never a a great time, truly. Well, well, let's get on to that, Taylor. uh, Mm. If I remember correctly, you previewed the French in our previews. I did. 
What did you make of this performance? How Didn't different love it. Is, yeah, <laughs> how different is it to the Korean Diacre France? Um, where do you think they go from here? They looked as dysfunctional and frustrated as they did under Diacre. Does that count? Uh, I was <laughs> confused by this one. Uh, Graham, I know you've got some thoughts on the tactics uh, from Hervé Renard, but... I don't think it worked very well. He he changed them to a 4-4-2. They had been playing in a 4-3-3. They had changed formation. They had tried different things, but it felt like they had sort of settled on a 4-3-3 in his short tenure. Uh, and then they go 4-4-2 here. And I think the idea was you get your fullbacks very high. You have then your wide players who can stay there and you can create overloads on the wings or they can move central. You can cross the ball in and you'll have numbers in the box to aggressively attack and and win set pieces or win uh, or or score goals. I didn't really see any of that. Instead, it felt to me like it was France in a 4-1-1-4. And it was very reminiscent of, I think, a lot of the frustrations Joe and I have had with the U.S. women's national team, that it was sort of move the ball slowly around the back, then go vertical into the channels and then hit hopeful crosses. Uh, and even a lot of those sort of vertical attempts were were cut out or under hit or there were bad giveaways from France. And it, and it felt very disjointed. It didn't feel like they had a lot of fluidity to the way they wanted to play or the way they wanted to attack. And I also don't think they got their best players into the best positions to really make a difference. It's I don't mean this to be discourteous, but it's wild to me that Bunny Shaw was far and away the most dangerous player on the pitch. I mean, she did a ton of running. She has that one uh, shot that goes just wide. It's not like she was constantly threatening the French goal. But in contrast to her, it felt like no French player was really going to threaten the Jamaica goal. Uh, it's uh, Diani, I think, has the, the double ting. She hits the crossbar. She hits the post. But that's off of another cross and another header. And, and I mean, she does well to meet it. But I, I didn't think of her as being so dangerous. And with this France team having the talent they have, this felt like an opportunity where they could have sort of stuck with what they've been going with get more reps, uh, get more sort of minutes together for your starters, have them playing in positions that are more comfortable, get a win or get at the very least a good sort of team performance. And then you can build on it. This one felt like a little bit of a stalled performance. And now I think they've got some work to do. Yeah, I would, I would echo all of that. Taylor, you talked about the shape a little bit and I can't tell if this was a shape issue or maybe a a lack of comfort that comes from not being in that four, three, three, or, if it had nothing to do with the shape whatsoever and was just a poor performance from France, even though, I mean, they, they had more shots. They had more than twice the number of shots that Jamaica had, 14 to 6, 73% possession. Like, by and large, they were the better team in this game, but not by a wide enough margin, right? Not by the, the margin that we would expect of a France playing against a Jamaica. Like, they were just way too slow on the ball. I mean, the, the transition attacks, the possession attacks, Jamaica, for their part, and we talked about them defending pretty compactly and having the structure to absorb pressure. Like they did that well. They were also more aggressive than I thought they were going to be. Like yeah. they weren't they weren't opposed to going and being in the opposition half for a little bit. They weren't opposed to stepping up to press and, and, and having Primus play underneath Bunny Shaw and, and uh, sort of go after Toletti. Like they were trying to to do some things here, which opened up space for France. And I thought that actually played out well for France, theoretically. France have the attacking talent. They have the players that thrive in space, that can go and be direct. It should have worked, but the execution just was not there at all. Like, there's a moment in the 15th minute where Jamaica play long. They're going for Bunny Shaw, as they almost always are in those long ball moments. France do well to win the second ball off of that initial challenge with with Shaw and their center backs. They win the second ball, 
and then they just waste their transition attack. Like in, in this moment, it's actually too fast. It's not too slow, but it's too fast. They couldn't find the right rhythm. Yeah. They couldn't find the right passes. They didn't have the right weight on their passes. The movement off the ball wasn't good enough. It just was a really rusty and, and kind of disappointing performance from France. It's very clear that they do have another level or even two levels in them, but it's going to be better for them if they find that probably sooner rather than later. Yeah, The, the midfield for me, for France, didn't seem to be quite set up right i think the idea was to have a double pivot um and then you had as taylor mentioned in possession they were tucking the wingers inside as well so i think the idea is to have bodies in there and stop jamaica in transition i think that was the logic anyway but the issue was that that really limited uh, grace gioro who was who was one of the stars of the euros last year and one of the things i remember about her at that tournament was how often she crashed the box yep. and made late runs from midfield. She scored a hat-trick in a game at the she Euros was, last year doing exactly that. And to emphasize it, she was their second top scorer in qualifying doing that routinely. Yeah, and we didn't see much of that at all from her in this game. She was just very deep, and and obviously, as we've kind of covered, yeah. Francie's attack seemed to be very disjointed. Eugenie Lissomere had a, had a rough match, and not really because of anything that she did actually that was the problem she barely touched the ball in the first half and was completely isolated and there were two times in the second half where and I swear this happened I I, I noted down the the, the times it happened in the, in, the, in the 70th minute it happened again in the 76th minute um, she was dropping in between the centre backs to pick up the ball and move it forward now I know it's common to see centre forwards drop deep to get involved I'm not sure I've seen it to that extreme before which said um it said a lot about how France were struggling to, to get things going in the attack. And I, I was pretty bullish on France before this tournament. I might have even had them down as my kind of co-favorites with, with the US. I think I said a couple of times that I, I thought they were maybe the team that could take out the US in the final. I think I, I might have underestimated just how big an impact the injuries to mm-hmm. uh, Marie Antoinette Cototo and Amandine Henri have had and, on France. Yeah. And Delphine Cascarino, I think as well, yeah. not having her out on the wing, uh, probably a pretty sizable loss. I think everything we've said sort of combines into a very good picture of France, which is murky and confusing. I think, Graham, you are dead on that not having Grace Gaillard more involved in the attack, not having her crash the box, uh, was a big part of why they weren't able to get more out of this one. Joe, I also think when you talked about they couldn't find the right pass and sometimes they were too direct and sometimes they were too ponderous, I feel like that is a really good way of understanding this game and how things just kept being disconnected. Because if you're France and you're moving it slowly, and then you try to go rapid fire through the middle, I felt like routinely you would they would go for like slow passing, slow passing, and then almost the Japan thing of slow passing, slow build, and then a couple quick passes vertically, and now you're in, in an attacking position. Except when they would go for that, the layoff would be uh, mishit, or the player would turn into pressure, or there would be a layoff overhit 20 yards backwards, and now they have to rebuild. It felt like they weren't ever, ever able to sort of build up and then have the almost like roller coaster speed of attack. It was sort of like slowly going up the hill and then slowly going up the hill some more. That would be the worst roller coaster ever, which I guess is just basically a ski tram. It's how you get from the bottom of the hill to the top. But in this case, France never able to then ski back down and have some fun, which would have been a goal. Uh, So in the end, I guess a point isn't the worst thing, but it's certainly not the best thing. Uh, And I agree with Graham that I had France as one of the strongest teams in this competition. I wouldn't say one draw means they're no longer in that situation, but I think it means that they've got some things to figure out and they need to rediscover that fluidity and the ability to attack aggressively early and often. Taylor, we haven't seen every team play yet, but it feels to me like this game is kind of indicative of a theme we're seeing in this tournament of 
the favorite stronger teams mm. being below par and the so-called weaker teams playing above par yep. and therefore a bit more parity not not many well, no real blowouts yet so uh, yes and i know graham and joe were saying that earlier i think i agree it, it's something i did expect there to be more eight nine nils in this tournament and there have not been so i was wrong on that one i still have a couple factors that i want to consider including there is the time zone thing of you've got a lot of teams uh traveling long distances so i i doubt jet lag is still a problem for some of them but I forget which team it is that has to go from one side of the country to the other and then back again. Like, there is a ton of travel in this tournament. I also forgot that uh, it's it's winter, theoretically, so you're getting colder temperatures, you're getting rain. Rain consistently is not going to lead to great performances. My my youth co- coach once said he had a Scottish accent, so this worked better. Uh, crap field, crap that, conditions, crap results. I knew as soon as you said that, sorry, Taylor. I knew as soon as you said that there was going to be a Scottish dig in there. Sorry, what did he say? Uh, it wasn't a dig. It really does just sound better. Of Graham, you said crap field, crap conditions, crap result. Crap field, crap conditions, See? crap result. See, yeah, way right. better. That way better. better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's what he would say when we would play poorly in the rain. I think that was the case for France. Um, and then I do also think some of some of the teams we've talked about have been very, very, very defensive. So uh, I think when we're talking about like the closing of the gap, some of that will be Jamaica is a good example of, of this, where I do feel like the gap is closed, that you had them causing problems for France and France had to figure some defensive things out. It wasn't just Jamaica bunkering and hoping there were good attacking periods of play from Jamaica. So in that way, I think the gap is closing for some teams for others. I think I'll, I'm still going to hold out and see what happens uh, for teams that maybe just are feeling a little bit more fatigue after the first game or the second game. We'll see what the goal difference ends up being. Uh, but yeah, Vietnam right now having a better goal difference than Zambia is not a thing I was expecting. Hurtful, into this hurtful, tournament. hurtful. Did not like that. That was a needless <laughs> shot. Though, Taylor, I agree with what you got to there. And I think that the end part is especially interesting. Ryan, you make a good point. I, I would agree that the, the, the stronger teams have not generally been as strong as expected and same the other way around. The inverse, I guess, for, for the weaker teams. In my mind, the biggest factor for that always is it's easier to destroy than it is to create when it comes to soccer and really most things in life, right? Like, it's easier to defend and have numbers against the ball and try to attack in transition than it is to break teams down. Like, it it is really, really hard to do that stuff. And ideally, when you have the right combination of players and you have a little bit of chemistry and some momentum, you'll expose the opposing low block and you will find advantages to, to win. There's a reason why teams still go at it that way. But I think immediately for teams that don't get to play together all that often, that, that don't train week in and week out like a club team, it is probably easier to, to toss 10 outfield players and a goalkeeper on the field and tell them to defend in a 4-4-2 inside their own half, like Jamaica did for stretches of this game against France, than it is to say, hey, go out and break this team down. You know, I know it's the first game, but we're going to do our best. I think it is harder to do that, to create in this case, than it is yeah. to destroy, which makes the, the weaker teams at times it makes it look like they're outkicking their coverage a little bit. Yeah, another thing to emphasize is, and Taylor kind of touched on this already, it is still early. We're not even through the first round of fixtures. Um, so maybe tomorrow, was it Brazil-Panama tomorrow? Maybe Brazil stick like six on Panama or Germany blow away Morocco. I don't How think dare that'll you? actually happen. How I don't, dare you? You waited for you didn't wait for the qualification. I don't think that'll happen. But, you know, we'll see now. Now I want it to happen, Taylor Rockwell. But, um, yeah, it's still very early. 
Graham, I wanted to make sweeping conclusions at this point, though. I know it's early, but here we are anyway. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground on this episode. One thing left to do, some very specific predictions tomorrow, including that game with Brazil playing Panama. We've got Italy playing Argentina, Colombia against Korea, and Germany taking on Morocco. Taylor, would you like to give us your VSP? I would love to. Uh, I'll go for Italy-Argentina. I think that Argentina's goalkeeper will complete 20 or more passes uh i talked about her in the preview korea uh she is very much a veteran but very calm uh when the ball comes in especially under pressure she'll go for she'll obviously have you know the easy passes to the center backs the easy pass into the deepest midfielder uh but then we'll also go for sort of lofted balls into the channel and will go long on occasion but often finds players who are open especially when teams are pressing and i do think italy might be more aggressive. I'm not going to say they're going to outright press this whole game or anything approximating that, but I think this is a game where Italy feel like they can or should win uh, and so might try to go at Argentina and make them uncomfortable, and I think uh, Correa is going to be on the ball fairly often and I think is going to be moving the ball fairly often, so I think she's going to complete 20 or more passes in this game. Oh, and as a reminder, because I think it's worth worth remembering, Benitez, my very specific prediction in the preview – was that Benitez, their central midfielder, will give the ball away three times to an opponent when she's trying to hit crossfield switches. I could also see that happening in this game. So good passing from one Argentine player, poor passing from another would be my broad, specific prediction. Marvelous stuff. Graham, take us to Brazil versus Panama. So my VSP for that game kind of leans into my VSP for the whole tournament for Brazil, which was something dribble-related. I can't quite remember. I'm sure the Discord. Someone in the Discord. Kenneth in the Discord is keeping track of everything. Thank you, Kenneth, for doing that. Um, But for this match, a Brazilian player will pull out six or more dribbles in this match. So... The reason I've picked six is that's what Sophia Smith registered against Vietnam. It's what Jennifer Hermoso did against Costa Rica. I think the most is, I don't have the numbers in front of me, I think Caroline Graham Hansen is the most with seven. So I think a Brazilian player will get up there in the dribbles column, uh, successful dribbles in this match. Could be Jabinha, could be Caroline, could be someone else, but I think it will be dribbly. (laughs) <laughs> dribbly times ahead thank you very much i'm going to cover colombia versus korea my vsp leans into uh, my korean vsp in general it's uh, revolves around ji so yun the star player for korea uh, i believe ji will score and record two or more line breaking passes in this game uh, she's a record goal scorer for korea 67 goals and 145 apps scored in her last two national team games that she's played in and as i mentioned in the previews is this uh, her specialty is the line breaking passes she made nine at the last world cup in three games uh, more than any other player despite playing just three games so i'm going to go for two or more a little more conservative than nine in three uh for g in this game but the way my vsps are going g will not start this game <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we'll see about that one. Uh, Joe, your VSP for Germany, Morocco. I'm still stuck. Did you just did you shorten appearances to apps? Maybe like 32 seconds ago or so. Does that something yeah, that I, happen? Yeah, I, I was thinking of Chili's and uh, Ryan's on the uh, clock. Knew it. He can't be wasting time saying knew the whole it. word. Yeah. <laughs> fair well, enough, Graham. To, to, fair be, enough. to be fair, Graham, we're talking about a tournament in Australia and New Zealand where they shorten every single word <laughs> as much as they can. So I think it's in keeping with that. I liked when you did, I think you sorted Australia to us or something earlier in the episode. I did like that one. I don't remember what how you did it, but I liked it. Um, my, my, Oz or Aussie. Uh, Oz, that's what it was. That's if, what it was. Like, like they, Joe, I don't know if they literally shorten everything. Like, this afternoon is the Savo, that kind of thing. That's their vibe. <laughs> 
That's epic. I love this. Okay, yeah. all right. Good to know. I will get to my VSP now, finally. Mine is for this game between Germany and Morocco. The prediction is that Jewel Brand will have more take-ons than any player in this game. I, I called Brand out specifically in my preview of Germany, and she's somebody that I'm going to be watching even closer, given that Lena Oberdorf is out for this game with a little bit of an injury. Germany will control the ball. They will have to break Morocco down, at least for stretches of this match. And Brand, just 20 years old, five foot ten, like long stride, tons of quality on the ball, good with both feet. I have a lot of expectations for her at this competition. It might be, it might be just one World Cup too early for her to truly be like an elite player. But I think we'll find out a lot about that and whether or not it is too early or not in this game against Morocco. I think she'll have more take-ons than any player trying to break through that Moroccan defense. I like Jewel Brand a lot. And, and listener, if you haven't watched her, I hope you'll pay extra attention to her. Extra attention, excuse me, to her. Again, just 20 years old. You should watch this game for Jewel Brand and for Joe's hype uh, of her. But I would also say I think this is going to be a really interesting game. It's one of the games I'm most excited for from this round of games because uh, Germany always interesting. But I, I did the Morocco preview. I think they have come on so quickly as a program. And at the same time, I feel like a lot of the talk has been dismissive of them in a lot of the kind of coverage I've seen or the way this game has been previewed, uh, not by Joe, but by other outlets. And I, I think this could be another one where maybe Morocco spring a surprise and get a win. Maybe it's nil-nil. Could also be, I don't mean to do this deliberately, Joe, could also be a Zambia situation in which it's I fine. just really it's built fine. up the hype and then they get smashed. Mm-hmm. We'll uh, but I don't, I don't think that will happen. I think this is going to be closer than a lot of people expect because I think Morocco are better than a lot of people think they will be. I love your enthusiasm for Morocco's program, both for now. Wins in general, Taylor. <laughs> Very good stuff. Thank uh, you. And let's hope that Eula Brand is on brand. We shall see. But for now, Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for all your contributions in this here podcast. Was that a gentle pronunciation correction? It, I of felt German? it. I felt yeah, it. It was noted. Thank you, Ryan. It was better than my attempt at the uh, the German nicknames earlier on in the this month. So I'll take it. Die, National Elf. Die. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Uh, Joe, thank you very much for your contributions and all pronunciations contained there within. Yeah, you got it, Ryan. And Graham, thank you very much, sir. Save the national health. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan, for that. Thank you. <laughs> Listener, thank you for joining us on this one on a Sunday. We'll be back on a Monday to talk about all those games and much more. But for now, bye. Slash